Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Sophie. Welcome back to our weekly podcast. And I hope you're learning the things that I want you to learn and that you're getting your questions answered so that you're able to live a much happier and better and connected life with your head and your heart and that everybody's living in somewhat of clarity and good communication. Last week's podcast, we talked about the female dating psyche, which really sounds kind of scary and ominous, but we really learned a lot why women want Mr. Right versus Mr. Right Now and how that's connected to actually a physical body mechanism. It was amazing to hear that stuff. Got to take a listen. The all women and what they think about men at times, that they just don't act on it, that they're probably as interested, some would say hungry as a man, but don't act on it and why they don't act on it and what society has done to prevent them from acting on it. And when they don't act on it, what happens? Because it's got to go somewhere. And that gender imbalances, we also learned in certain cities, can most definitely affect your ability to find a man. And obviously that makes sense. If you there's more women than men in a city, those men are lucky men and those women tend to suffer. So listen to this podcast. It's really great. They're all on my website or on iTunes at www.drsophie.com or on iTunes. This week, though, we are talking about a very interesting and very needed part of our lives that I think if we don't always have our eyeball on, will derail, disrupt, dysregulate, imbalance our lives in so many ways you have no idea. Every day I see patients who are complaining of one thing or another, and after I ask this most important question, at the end of the day, we end up addressing that as the initial problem, and let me tell you, five to ten of the ones on the list that they came in with of problems disappear because it is the most vital part of our body, and that is about sleep. How much sleep do we need? Does the average person get five hours of sleep, six hours of sleep, eight hours of sleep? Does it vary with your age? Those are questions we need to really understand, and that is a topic that we need to really master because if we don't sleep, our brains don't restore, they don't recharge, we have low tolerance throughout the day, we can't put up with things, we're tired, we're drinking too much coffee, we're taking too many pills, we're trying to stay awake, we're irritable, we're not effective parents, we're not effective at our job. It is across the board one of the biggest indicators that has fingers in everything we do. So we've got to start off with great sleep. Another great question I get asked all the time, well, I didn't sleep well last night, but I'm going to sleep really well tonight. Well, that's great, but you're not going to make up for sleep, I bet. And we're going to find out if that's really true or not. So if you don't sleep, can you make up for it if you sleep the next day? I don't know. So listen in. Call me, 1-855-SOPHIE-NOW, 1-855-767-4966. Every caller will receive a free signed copy of my book, Side by Side, the mother-daughter conflict-free communication book, and every mother and daughter's got to have those tools. So come on back, 1-855-SOPHIE-NOW, or 1-855-767-4966. you got to know about sleep. Today joining me, we're talking about sleep, and this is Dr. Sophie. We have an expert who is hopefully not asleep. He is a licensed psychologist and a diplomat of the American Board of Sleep Medicine, psychologist at the Waterbury Regional Sleep Lab and the Sleep Disorders Center of Connecticut. He's also an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Yale University. How proud his mother must be. Dr. Klein, are you with us? I am, yes. Hi. Is your mother proud of you? <laughs> I, I hope so, yes. I, I hope so, so, too. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Glad to be here. So tell me a little bit about you and what you do. Well, uh, I'm a clinical psychologist and I've uh, had um, 27 years of practice here in Connecticut. And uh, over that time, I've had an opportunity to work with a lot of people with sleep disorders. And um, about 10 years, 11 years ago, I got an opportunity that many psychologists uh, don't get, which is to really get trained in sleep medicine uh, through the hospital that I was working at at the time and uh, learning to read sleep studies and uh, work with people who have sleep apnea as well as insomnia and 
other kinds of problems like sleepwalking and nightmare disorder and things like that. And uh, I was able, uh, because at that time we could do it, to sit for the boarding exam and actually got boarded in sleep medicine. Uh, if you could pass the exam that the physicians take and had the proper background and training at that time, uh, that was possible. So it's become a, a really large part of what I do professionally. Uh, I've been writing a blog for psychology today, and certainly in terms of the students that I work with, um, because sleep disorders are pervasive across psychiatric and medical problems, a lot of this information is extremely helpful to them. Uh, and I clinically work with uh, a lot of patients who have various kinds of sleep disorders. It's unbelievable. I mean, I can't reiterate and underline what you just said about how pervasive it is for any mental health or health disorder. Sleep is a vital part of everything, don't you think? Well, it is. You know, if you think about it, uh, current estimates are that 10% of the American population, uh, adults, uh, have uh, insomnia, uh, which is, you know, difficulty falling or staying asleep, waking up early, multiple awakenings during the night with difficulty falling back asleep, or non-restorative sleep, right. and there are daytime symptoms to that, like depression, uh, low mood, uh, memory difficulties, uh, you know, feeling fuzzy and, and not very effective. Uh, probably 2 to 4% of the population, 2% of women, 4% of men, uh, have sleep apnea, and that's probably a very conservative estimate. Uh, and when you consider that 50% of people who develop um, um, congestive heart failure will develop some form of sleep disorder, and it virtually is and actually is one of the defining characteristics of uh, clinical depression right, and right. Uh, anxiety, you can see how really extensive the problem is. So you could, you could have a sleep issue that then triggers and becomes something mental health. You could get depressed, you can get irritable, you could whatever, or vice versa, correct? You could have that depression and yeah. have a sleep disorder. And we often think of insomnia as either being a, a problem in its own right or it can be a co-occurring symptom of some other disorder. Uh, what we do know, though, is that in, in cases of uh, problems like depression, treating the insomnia may not be the full um, story, but it certainly does help people recover from their depression. And in the same way people have medical illnesses, uh, again, treating their insomnia isn't going to take care of that entire problem, but it certainly will improve quality of life, help them to function better, and, uh, and, and to do better clinically. Right, because if you don't treat the whole thing, you're not treating anything. True. My question True. to you, though, and many people will want to know, how do I know if I should get, if I feel depressed and I'm not sleeping well, that I should go talk to a psychiatrist? Should I go to a sleep doc? Should I, you know, what do I treat first? And how do you know where to start? Yeah, that, that can be a complex problem. I generally recommend that um, if you have a good relationship with your primary care doctor, that's probably a good place to start because this is someone who's, you know, hopefully over time been familiar with your medical care, knows your background, and may be able to help uh, tease some of that out. For example, if there might be indications that you're having, say, problems, you know, breathing during the night, and that's going along with your insomnia, they may right off the bat direct you more toward, say, a sleep center where you can have uh, a sleep study and have that checked out. On the other hand, if they realize this is a real change in your mood from the kind of baseline they've known, there don't seem to be other possible comorbidities, they might direct you more in the uh, toward a psychiatrist or perhaps a sleep psychologist, someone who has background in, say, behavioral approaches for treating insomnia itself. Got it. Okay, and so then is that why i mean many times when i'm treating somebody psychiatrically and i do see sleep as an issue either they're not falling asleep or they're falling asleep but they have frequent awakenings or one or the other or both i'll often pick my medication that has a side effect profile that may sedate them at night and just give them yeah. treat their depression and knock them out a little bit at night and start hitting two birds with one stone what do you think about that yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a good choice, and, and I think that's a good reason for uh, choosing more sedating kind of antidepressant uh, because it can help people out with uh, sleep. And often, um, you know, I'm thinking about uh, the book uh, Darkness Visible that right. was uh, written by William Styron back in the uh, the 90s where he talks about his own um, 
you know, depression, and he really revealed a lot of what he dealt with that. And one of the things he really graphically uh, goes into is just how difficult the nights are when you're alone, you're feeling terrible, you're having negative thoughts, you're looking at the ceiling, right, and it right. seems like the rest of the world is having a good night's sleep. That is some of the worst torment that people can experience yeah, as part I'm, of their clinical depression. I'm sure. I mean, it's eerie. And you're alone, yeah. and you you think, what's wrong with me? Everyone else is doing one thing. I can't do that. And, you know, it's kind of scary. So, yeah, I kind of get it. And there are many people I see often that have issues during the day that they have no idea connect back to their sleep. Correct. They're yeah. either road raging or they're, they're <laughs> you know, getting fired or, you know, they're not functioning. A child isn't functioning in school. And I have a little mnemonic I put together called sweep, like the broom, and the first S is for sleep. And when I ask people that, they're like, well, what does that matter? Well, it matters because after they tell me they're not sleeping, we address it, a lot of stuff goes away. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I have had an opportunity to work with uh, quite a few physicians over the year, years who have uh, developed various kinds of sleep problems. And I sometimes think that some of the kind of irritability and depression that they experience, you know, they're coping with just intense work demands and right. you know, a lot of technology and science and medical legal issues and things like that. It's a really challenging uh, kind of uh, profession to be working in today. And often people are getting very little sleep. You know, this would be surgeons, this would be physicians in general. And I think often a lot of um, their difficulties really track back to the poor sleep patterns that they may have developed, say, back in college or in medical school or on residency. Totally. All right. We'll get back to this discussion. Do you mind? Let's take a caller together. Sure. All right. Hello? Hi there. Hi. You're on with Dr. Klein and myself, Dr. Sophie. How are you? Who's this? Good. My name is Paul. Hey, Paul. Hi, guys. Hello, Paul. What's uh, up? I am calling because I have all sorts of sleep problems. I have um, insomnia. I definitely have a tough time falling asleep. And then I also have the problem of waking up many, many times throughout the course of the night. And I've tried everything. I have no idea what to do at this point. Is it new? No, I've had it for, I would say, about five years. So how old are you when it hit? It hit probably at around the age of 23. Hmm. But all through up till then you were a good sleeper and all that stuff? Not really, but um, in college I had a tough schedule where I would finish my homework very late at night and then I was on a sports team, so... I had to be up at 5 a.m. for practices. So I really didn't have much time to sleep anyway, so it wasn't really something I was aware of. Ah. What do you think, Dr. Klein? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, in many ways you sound like uh, kind of the standard person with insomnia because, uh, you know, we talk about a number of factors that lead to insomnia, the first of which is that they're predisposing factors. And you describe how, you know, probably you were never a really great sleeper, and that characterizes a lot of people who ultimately develop insomnia. So from early age, perhaps either due to genetic factors and or some of the early sleep experiences they had, they're not really... Uh, great sleepers, but they function fine until there's some kind of precipitating event. You may not even remember what that is or when it occurred exactly, but something either disrupts your sleep or there's an increase in stress which causes the arousal to carry over into the night. And as a result, the sleep becomes uh, disturbed. And if that goes on for more than about a month, you begin to expect uh, condi uh, conditioning effects to take hold. And so uh, people will often develop poor sleep habits or kinds of uh, beliefs around sleep that enhance their arousal. And then the insomnia becomes basically uh, long-term. It takes on a life of its own, as it said. So it's like a and way of life. It actually becomes kind of a way of life. So people uh. stay in bed longer than they should. They don't get up when uh, they would be most awfully uh, able to do in order to improve the sleep. So those are the kinds of things that perpetuate the insomnia. So we talk about those three P's, and uh, once it's become basically uh, long-term like this or chronic, you can have years and years and years of insomnia. Mm -hmm. And basically in a setting like what I work in, there are basically two approaches to working on this. One would be there are medications today that can help people fall asleep and enhance their ability to stay asleep through the night. Uh, the more preferable approach, though, from the point of view of uh, the sleep medicine field uh, is to use cognitive behavioral strategies. And you can read up on some of these. There are books that cover some of the techniques. 
Um, for someone who has a really entrenched insomnia, though, it's probably good to work with somebody who can coach you through that. Uh, you know, usually an insomnia treatment is, say, about four to six sessions. And some of the things we might recommend are changing your time in bed to more closely approximate the actual amount of sleep that you're getting in order to eliminate being in bed awake a lot, which actually conditions you to be awake during the night. It's just paired learning, uh, mm. like Pavlov's dogs. Or we might actually encourage you to uh, spend less time in bed so that you increase sleep drive for the next night. Mm. Uh, so those get fairly complicated uh, in terms of working out exactly what the best strategy is. But uh, again, there are written materials on this that you can access on the Internet or pick up a book at the library. Have you found you them to work? Yeah, yeah. They're actually uh, probably about 80% successful and more successful in terms of long-term treatment than uh, medications. So well, medicines are Can I ask you that. something quickly? Yeah. The sure. first thing is that um, I've actually tried a number of different sleep aids, both prescription and non-prescription, and they do not in any way help me fall asleep. Like what? What have you tried? I've taken Ambien. I've taken Lunesta. I've taken Unisom, I've taken Ativan. And do they initiate sleep for you? They do not. They do nothing at all. They don't, they don't keep you up either? Uh, no, I just, I sort of have the same cycle. It sort of has no effect whatsoever. And so, I guess, are you laying there and you're thinking or are you worrying? Are you, you know, can you tell what's going my on? Mind, my mind is definitely races, but um, it's not as if it's always something sort of pressing or worrisome. It could be something extremely mundane. I just right. It's just I a can't brain shut that, it off. Yeah. yeah so, Doctor Klein, I have a lot of patients like this that you know either have ADD or they're really creative. I work here in Hollywood. They're sure. creative types. They're those brains that work at an RPM of really high. <laughs> exactly. You know, is that insomnia that's gone on and been? Yeah, yeah that, that's insomnia because, uh, you know, the thing we usually think about is that people are having worrisome thoughts, right? Things that are increasing their arousal through anxiety. Um, and sometimes the most intense form of that is worry about sleep itself. Like, oh, my God, if I don't get to sleep, right, right. tomorrow is going to be terrible, or I won't right. be able to think, or I won't be able to write that, uh, you know, dialogue I need to come up with, or things like that. Right. Uh, but it can just be a lot of thought. It can just be excessive uh, thoughts. We talk about excessive nocturnal mentation. It isn't necessarily anxiety-provoking. It just can be that you're being aroused by, you know, basically positive thoughts or planning the next day or things like that. And so we need to find ways to get people off of that. And that's where things like, uh, you know, imagery at night or perhaps even getting out of bed if you haven't been falling asleep within about 20 minutes and doing some other relaxing activity till you either begin drowsy or you go back and try it again and just repeat that. Uh, it actually increases the amount of sleep deprivation over a number of days. And that that's called stimulus control. That can actually help break up the association between being in bed and being awake. And, you know, if you spend a lot of time in bed awake over the last five years, your brain kind of gives you what you would expect. So it's, you know, you get into bed and the brain is like, oh, time to start thinking about fill in the blank. Well, that, that, uh, that I want to ask you a question, Paul. So talking about stimulus, I'm assuming you've been with someone in bed. What's that like? Are you able to sleep, you know, fool around and lay there with somebody and fall asleep easier? Or do you still have the same issue? When there's someone with me? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's kind of creepy for them. I'm usually awake. I'm just sort of... So you're not relaxed after a great interaction with somebody and can hold them and go to bed? Uh, and go to no, sleep? No, no. It's, it's no different usually. Wow. So what do you think about that, Dr. Klein? It really is this brain that doesn't turn off. Yeah, it's a lot of overarousal. One question I would have, how do you do when you're on a, uh, a trip and you're sleeping in a hotel, better or worse? I would say probably a little worse actually because I'm not used to the bed. So I'm I'm sort of right, so I, I could sort of I feel some sort of physical discomfort I guess being in a different bed than I'm used to. But it's not worry. Right. It's not separation. No, no, it's not none of that. No. And how about your they, parents? I'm sorry, Dr. Klein. My parents Do uh, they sleep? They have problems? No, no, not at all. In fact my mother <laughs> my mother sleeps like can just fall out at the blink of an eye. So can my sister. So wow. no one has no one in my family that I know of, or at least in my immediate family, has any of these problems. Yeah, so no family history of it. So what do you and think? another thing I just wanted to bring up is that um, it almost seems as though, well, f for one thing, I get tired at very random times during the day. Sort of exhaust. I get hit with sort of a wave of exhaustion. At very strange times, afternoon, maybe early evening or something.
Hmm. Um, but it also seems that no matter how... So first of all, one thing I wanted to know is, you know, should I try to nap if I have a chance to do that? And second, it almost seems as though no matter how exhausted I may be at the end of the night, it makes no difference about whether or not I can fall asleep. I could feel absolutely exhausted and still not be able to fall asleep. Yeah, you could be wiped out and still not yeah. sleep. Yep, that's yeah. that. Yeah, we, we make a di- strong distinction between fatigue exhaustion and sleepiness they're not the same thing so you can be very tired and fatigued but if you're not sleepy you're not in a position to really be able to fall asleep so those are really two different things people can be very exhausted but not really in a state where they're relaxed enough to be able to sleep and the thing about during the day there is a 24-hour circadian rhythm and there is a natural low after two well, say after about lunch, and uh, that really is due to the cycle that uh, our timing mechanism in the brain puts us through. Uh, a lot of the uh, companies now that advertise uh, you know, these stimulant drinks are kind of playing on that particular time because it's a almost universal thing. You know, In some countries they have siestas and things right. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we do say uh, is that if you are... Um, having very severe insomnia, uh, naps can be counterproductive. However, a brief nap, maybe 15 or 20 minutes, during that circadian low, say somewhere between 12 and 2 o'clock or so, uh, probably isn't going to negatively affect your ability to sleep at night, and it may help uh, increase your alertness uh, far better than, say, caffeine would at that time. And the reason for that is you're not you know, there's a sleep cycle, and it takes about 90 minutes, roughly speaking. And if you only are uh, allowing yourself about 15 or 20 minutes for sleep, that's a power nap because you'll get stage two sleep. You won't get down into the deeper stages of sleep, stage three. If you get into stage three and you wake out of that or awakened up uh, out of that, your brain is actually cooled down. You'll actually have a really hard time uh, getting alert again, and people will often feel worse after a nap like that. Also, stage three sleep exponentially reduces sleep drive, so it would be sort of like having a big meal, you know, sometime yeah. before going mm-hmm. for uh a feast. You know, you're just not going to be very hungry. So that's why uh, longer naps are naps at the wrong time. By the way, as you get later in the day taking a nap, the amount of stage three sleep is going to increase. So uh, as you get later and later and closer to your regular bedtime, naps are more disruptive to the uh, the nighttime sleep. I see. I see. Well, actually, something that concerns me about what you just said is the 90-minute sleep cycle. Yeah. Right. Um, because I wake up so frequently throughout the night that I mm-hmm. never actually sort of, I never seem to stay awake for 90 minutes. I sort of wake up every 45 minutes to an hour all night once I do get to sleep. Right. Well, so it seems like I'm never hitting my deepest stage or something based on what you're saying. Well, that that's probably true. And one thing, uh, like, are you generally functioning pretty well during the day? Yes. I mean, I'm so accustomed to it that, to be honest, I really, I'm just used to it. I don't know any better at this point. Hmm. Yeah, I could I could yeah. actually tell you there's about two times in the last eight years, two specific examples that I remember waking up feeling extremely refreshed. Other than that, it's always kind of just groggy. Yeah, probably, you know, what's happening is you are, um, in fact, you may be getting more sleep of a low quality than you realize because a lot of people have what we call paradoxical insomnia, and that is when you're in stage one sleep or light stage two sleep, you may not even be aware exactly whether you're awake or asleep. It's kind of, you know, you have a lot of cognitive activity going on, and it may be very hard to discern uh, whether you're really fully awake or fully asleep. Uh, in fact, you may think you're awake when if you had an EEG hooked up, you could actually right, see right. that you were, in fact, in a light stage of sleep. Yep. And that sleep is going to keep you going. You know, you'll be able to function, but it's probably not going to leave you feeling optimal. And uh, you may have uh, things that could be kind of disrupting your sleep, you know, um, and that, that's where, you know, talking with a primary care doctor can be helpful because, you know, if people have breathing problems and they're waking up frequently because they're having a hard time breathing or maybe they're having leg kicks during the night that may be, you know, strong enough that that may be waking them up or they may be having spontaneous awakenings because of uh, heightened arousal that doesn't fully go away. We can't really go into deeper sleep when we're over-aroused. You know, it's like but, uh, when you're in stage three sleep, that's like where, you know, the 
the bomb goes off next door and you didn't right. hear it because yeah, yeah. you're so disconnected from uh, the the external world. And, you know, historically that would be a dangerous state to be in, although it's extremely uh, refreshing, refreshing yeah. and recovering for the human body. Uh, but if you're in that state and, say, the lion was coming through your little village, you might be dinner. So yes. it really, uh, it's a state that if we're in a dangerous place, you know, we know that the, the lion is on the prowl, that heightened level of arousal will not allow us to go down into those deeper stages of sleep. So we'll stay in a lighter stage of sleep, and therefore the sleep more easily is disrupted by sounds or mm-hmm. discomfort or anything that may be going on. So what do, you, what do you think should be the next step for Paul? Should he go have a sleep study? Should he get on something? Should he CBT himself? Well, you know, I I think in something like this, uh, getting a little bit more information, like perhaps reading one of the books on uh, specifically on insomnia, just so that uh, some of the topics we're kind of touching on now, uh, you know, you can get more information about. Uh, and then I would really talk with the uh, the primary care doctor. If if they treat it, you know, they really only have time probably to use a medication approach. Right. And you've already found that that isn't extremely helpful. Uh, the next step might be either going to a uh, behavioral expert, psychiatrist, psychologist, who has training in this area, uh, or possibly even to a sleep center if there might be reason to, you know, suspect that a full sleep study would be necessary. Okay. Interesting. Paul, yeah, thank you. I mean, that's 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 at least a good action plan. Yeah, you gotta get, you gotta get some good would, sleep. Would it be a, appropriate for me to uh, suggest a title for a book? That sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the, I mean, there are there are a number of them, uh, but one of the ones I get a lot of positive feedback from patients on is by Gregory Jacobs. Greg Jacobs, uh, he's up in uh, Massachusetts, and it's called "Say Goodnight to Insomnia." And uh, it's, it's, it's a really good uh, book. Uh, I'll let you know up front, he is very negative toward uh, sleeping medications, but that's based on his reading of the, the literature, and uh, it is a valid perspective. Uh, but uh, some people you know, are kind of disturbed by that. It doesn't sound like you would be one of those. But it's, uh, it's a good book and um, uh, really gives you a lot of information that may help you then kind of figure out what's the best direction to go in. It's also a quick read. It's it's uh, pretty easy to read. It's not overly technical, but it's not simplistic either. And that might be a good place to kind of get started, increase your own knowledge and information, um, and then plan a treatment approach from that. Good job. Thank you, Thank yeah. you Dr. Klein. Paul, you got to go to sleep. <laughs> I, I also want to, uh, you know, again, I just, I, I have no conflicts of interest here. I'm not, uh, you know, uh, a book salesman or anything like that. But there are now uh, some instruments that can be uh, gotten that actually allow people to, um you know, monitor their own sleep with EEG during the night. Uh, and uh, some of these you can uh, purchase. Uh, feedback I'm getting from patients, and I have to say this is not based on uh, direct research I'm uh, familiar with, but what I'm hearing from people who are using these, at least here in the Northeast, is that it does help them accurately understand what's going on with their sleep, how much deep sleep and lighter sleep they're getting. And uh, it kind of goes along with people who are, you know, like monitoring their calories and their amount of yeah physical activity during the day and that can be helpful for some people in terms of planning their own self-help approach yeah that's cool it sounds like they're doing their own little mini sleep study at home yeah it is kind of like that they're really looking at uh you know their their own particular sleep pattern and that can be really helpful all right paul you got a lot of tools you have at least a place to start so i would really check into this you got to sleep it affects everything you do I know, I know. Well, thank you guys very much. Thanks You're for welcome. your advice. Take care. All right, bye. Have a good bye. one. That was interesting because I'm sure that's a very common scenario that you hear, correct? Yeah, that is like a classic, uh, you know, what, what he was describing is classic insomnia, you know, with difficulty falling asleep, you know, the multiple awakenings during the night, not feeling restored, uh, you know, not, not really being dysfunctional during the day, but uh, certainly not having optimal health either and uh... you know somebody with a history of of not um, maybe not have been the best sleeper in the world but he did fine up until something happened and then now five years later it's really becoming burdensome so i would say that that was a pretty classic uh... form of um... 
insomnia, which is, of course, really challenging to treat, and we, we have a lot of success working with that. Good. All right, let's take a voice moment, and I want to talk to you more. Hi, Dr. Sophie. I was just wondering why I fight sleep like a child. I will be sleepy at night, I'll be tired, and yet I struggle to uh, get things done. Um, even just watch TV, anything I can think of to do besides going to bed. And I know that my body needs the rest, but I... I don't know. I just cannot. I, I find it worse than a, a child just struggling to stay awake. So like there's things that I cannot get accomplished, like I don't have enough time in the day. Yet I can't perform good during the day because I'm so tired because I've got sleep. It's a never-ending cycle. Thank you. Ooh, yeah. But that's so sad to listen to her because you can tell yeah. she's really struggling and she wants some help. What are you telling her? Yeah, this actually is uh, a fairly common thing we run into, too. So one of the things I would say is that you're not alone, that this is something that uh, people have. And, uh, you know, this might be something where, you know, working with a counselor could be helpful, you know, to kind of maybe get a bit more understanding about what it is that, you know, you're you know, kind of resistant in terms of, um, you know, just doing the thing of going to bed and getting some sleep at night because then that's going to really make it hard during the day. And then, of course, once your sleep pattern, that circadian rhythm gets thrown off, you may find that you're, you know, having a little bit more energy, paradoxically, later in the day to to do things, even though you know that that's really the time you'd want to be closing down. Uh, you may be exposing yourself to bright light at night, and we know that that helps keep people up uh, later, even though they may be feeling really tired, again, tired and sleepy are not the same things. Um, And what we would call this, just from the perspective of the sleep field, is poor sleep hygiene, right? It's staying up past that optimal time. And it's like the best time to sleep is to catch that wave, if you want to think of it like that. There's a time when, you know, the factors uh, during the day, the the sleep drive that's built up over the course of the day, plus our built-in time clock uh, line up, and when that happens, that's the best time for us to get to sleep. And a lot of people actually feel like, well, I don't want to give in to that, and they will actually fight against that drowsiness. So that's poor sleep hygiene, and if you can get yourself to do some of the behavioral things, like uh, begin to, you know, dim down lights about an hour before your desired bedtime, you know, engage in, you know, very relaxing, comforting things in that time so that you're not energizing yourself, um, you can actually begin to re-sculpt that sleep pattern so you can sleep better. Um, but again, you do have to wonder, you know, what is, are you afraid you're going to miss out on something if you stay up, yeah. uh, if you go to sleep? Or, were there things that were disturbing that happened to you in the past around bedtime, and so you're kind of uh, alert and don't really want to give in to that? There might be a lot of more kind of like psychological issues that right. might be worth uh, exploring, exploring yeah. in that case. Well, tell me more about what is good sleep hygiene. What are the components? So you say dim those lights, low energy during that time. What else would you say? Is it yeah, temperature? Yeah. Is it a Humidifier. Actually, a, a thing that uh, Peter Hari, uh, who was at the uh, Mayo Clinic, a psychologist um, back in the uh, 60s and 70s, had worked on this. And uh, basically, he came up with uh, a set of rules that are good behaviors to help create an optimal uh, sleep environment. So these are things like, uh, you know, getting up at the same time every day, uh, not having caffeine after, say, about 2 in the afternoon, not drinking alcoholic beverages prior to bedtime, not smoking, you know, with, well, hopefully not all, but not within a, certainly a few hours of going to bed, uh, making sure that the room is uh, dark, quiet, cool, um, uh, so, you know, not having noise and things like that. So those things really matter. Yeah, they matter, but what we have found is, uh, because back in the 70s, 80s, and um, even probably into the 90s, this was our first line of defense when it came to behavioral techniques. Right. So, you know, we would encourage this, and I think what you'd have to say about it, th- these are probably necessary but not sufficient. What we have found is that uh, you can almost use this as a placebo control in studies for um, treating insomnia because while they're all important, they're all helpful uh, in and of themselves, they're usually not sufficient to help someone overcome insomnia. So uh, they're good things, they're, they are helpful, um, but if you have a really severe sleep problem, chances are, even if you do all the right sleep hygiene, that alone isn't going to be enough. able to help you break through. But they but are helpful. Help. 
Okay. And for regular, uh, you know, people without insomnia, they really do help, uh, you know, make sleep easier and deeper. Good. Okay. Couple questions. Tell me what the three P's are. Oh, the uh, predisposing, precipitating, and uh, perpetuating factors to sleep so, disorders. So that that's what we talk about the three P model, the development of the of insomnia. This goes back to the eighties and so the idea is that the you know, predisposing things are either genetic or um, learning Dramatic. factors that occur fairly early in sleep and make people vulnerable to developing insomnia. Uh, then those precipitating factors are the things, usually either sleep disruption, it could be like having to care for an elderly uh, relative who is ill, or perhaps, you know, you, you right. start your uh, residency and you have to right. work three, six-hour shifts or things like that. And then the, uh, the, the, the ones that keep it going over time, the third P, are, are things like uh, a lot of negative thoughts and beliefs about sleep that cause fear. Uh, it could be some of these poor sleep hygiene things where you're not really, uh, you know, providing an adequate sleep environment or you're, you know, in order to keep functioning, you're drinking caffeine late into the evening or, you know, you're so tired you're trying to get to sleep at night but you can't so you drink a lot of alcohol. Uh, those are all the kinds of perpetuating factors that keep things going over time. So those are the three P's. All right. And the stages of sleep? Stages of sleep are basically, uh, initially, you have to be able to relax. And uh, on a sleep study, when you're looking at the EEG, that's when uh, basically you close your eyes. Most people will begin to show an alpha rhythm showing that they're relaxing. That will begin to slow down into a theta rhythm, which is the transition into sleep, which is then um, stage one sleep, which is very light. Uh, if your name is called, you'll wake up immediately. Um, half the time you'll say, yes, I was asleep. Half the time you'll say, no, I wasn't asleep. Stage two sleep occurs when some features of the EEG change that um, are well known to people who score these studies, and, and they know when that transition occurs. That's and, where and we that's spend probably about 50 55% of the night. It's, it's fairly decent sleep. It's not extremely deep. It's just good standard sleep. And you're saying uh, the, e the, EEG, the EEG changes you mean are brainwave changes for people who don't yeah, understand. Yeah, so these are things like K-complexes appear, sleep spindles. These are actually things that really stand out in the record, and uh, they, they're the features that show the transition from the stage one, which is a mixed kind of uh, uh, right. frequency. Into to stage this. two. Yeah, into the stage two. And then stage three, you begin to see the delta waves. And this is the, the deepest level of sleep where um, the correlate of, of seeing that kind of EEG pattern is that you're really um, fairly disconnected from uh, the outside world. And uh, people experience this as just being kind of a void. You know, you go through that fairly quickly. Um, I don't know if you're some, like, Zen or Tibetan master or something, you may be able to train yourself to even be aware of that. But for most of us, that is really a kind of blank time. It's very restorative. As I said earlier, it exponentially relieves sleep drive. So a little bit of that goes a long way. And at the end of that, once we're coming out of that, we go back up to stage two sleep for a bit and then drop into REM or rapid eye movement sleep, which is uh, when the most vivid kinds of dreams occur. And uh, that occurs the first time, you know, about 90 minutes into the night, somewhere between 60 and 120 minutes. And then after you come out of that, you're nearly awake. It's a vulnerable time when it's easy to wake up. Yeah. And if you don't wake up, you'll drop back down into stage one, two, and so on, go back through the whole cycle over the next 90 minutes or so. Uh, except that after the first two cycles, you won't get too much uh, stage three sleep after that, and Why? the amount of dream sleep will increase. So toward the morning, you're getting more and more uh, REM sleep, which over the course of a, a regular night will comprise about 20 to 25 percent of the sleep time. And Why so those are the sleep cycles. Okay, thank you. But why do you not go back into allotted three, stage three, deeper sleep, once you've hit it? Ah, because it, the drive uh, to enter that, it's like deep hunger. And uh, the equivalent in eating would be, you know, you're extremely hungry. You've now relieved that sleep drive, and so the brain just doesn't go back down into that. So right. now, if you've been heavily sleep-derived, you know, if you've been through a disaster and you haven't slept for three or four days, right. you will get massively more, you'll get rebound of your uh, stage three sleep. But if you're basically in a normal uh, sleep pattern, you're relatively uh, rested, most of the 
the uh, you know the power spectrum in the first uh, will be be in the first two sleep cycles Got in it. the uh, uh, delta or stage three sleep. Okay, one more, and, and then yeah. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish. Well, and then toward the morning, you know, you're getting more and more of the dream sleep, which actually means that the you know you 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 cool down in the evening and you cool down and keep cooling down until the early morning hours, and then as you start going into more and more dream sleep, that's a very active metabolic state of the brain. So you're actually kind of beginning to prepare to wake up, and if you get wakened out of that deep sleep, you're cooled down, and we call it sleep inertia, right. sleep drunkenness, where it's really hard to get going, whereas by the morning, if you're coming out of dream sleep, the brain is kind of ready to go, and you'll be more you know, alert and ready to go coming out of a, a dream stage than you would be out of, say, one of these deeper sleeps. If somebody, say, woke you up at 3 in the morning, right. it might be really tough to get going. So, really, you can't make up for lost sleep. you just got to start a cycle and see how valuable it's going to be to you. Yeah, the way the only way that you make up for sleep is that uh, you will increase the uh, the density, if you will, of the uh, stage three sleep. So if you've been deprived of sleep, your brain will not have to make that up hour to hour. This is short term sleep loss, uh, and it will do that by basically increasing the depth of sleep. So okay. you'll get deeper sleep, uh, but you can make up, you know, even several nights of uh, sleep loss short term. Uh, in a you know two or three nights by having and uh, you know maybe sleeping a little bit longer but mainly by sleeping deeper, deeper right but not taking a nap the day after you didn't sleep isn't going to make up for sleep necessarily right, that, it might that's help a little probably bit. not going to do it in fact okay. you probably go into really deep sleep because you're sleep deprived and then it's going to be hard to kind of wake exactly. out of that and then go to sleep again that night yes okay right. one last question and I will free you supplements <laughs> what do you think about that melatonin valerian root Lavender, all of those really great things. Are they helpful, not helpful? Well, uh, like lavender, you know, um, I am not aware of any research that shows that that in and of itself has any sleep-inducing effect. However, a lot of people find it very relaxing and calming. It's kind of nice. So that sort of goes along with the idea of creating an optimal sleep environment. So if you're using something like that, it's probably going to, you know, help you relax and get to sleep. You know, a lot of the hotels now will give you a little bit of, you know, you can spritz onto the pillows along with your earplugs and, you know, eye mask. And your chocolate with the caffeine. (laughs) Right. So so that, uh, but now the things like melatonin, uh, melatonin is really more of a chronobiologic than it is a hypnotic. So it does have some mild hypnotic effects because, you know, there are two different melatonin receptors in the brain. And so used somewhere about, you know, an hour, hour and a half before bedtime, uh, maybe even up to... 45 minutes or so before bedtime, it can have a mild sleep-inducing effect, uh, but mainly it's useful uh, when it's used in a more sophisticated way for people who have delayed sleep phases. So they're right. staying up way too late in the night. A lot of teenagers, early adults get into this. They're then wanting to wake up later in the morning or in the early afternoon, and that may be fine, except they have to get to school or work. And uh, properly used melatonin can be really helpful with that. It can also be helpful for people with jet lag. So I think it really does have some benefit. Valerian root uh, apparently uh, really does uh, have some sleep-inducing effect, and a lot of people uh, report to me that they do find it uh, helpful used as kind of a over-the-counter sleep aid. Interesting. And are there other supplements you would recommend or you kind of believe in? Well, the other ones that can be used, and I always recommend discussing this with your physician or if you're on any kind of, uh, you know, medication that could interact with any of these things, but uh, tryptophan, you know, which is an amino acid, and it's the precursor of serotonin and melatonin, can, for many people, kind of create that drowsy feeling that helps them fall asleep. Probably need to take that along with uh, food and probably in fairly large quantity, but I think that's generally available. It certainly is on the East Coast in drugstores and health food places and things like that. Um, and then 5-HTP, which is an intermediate step between the tryptophan 
and uh, serotonin, melatonin. Um, that hasn't been looked at as carefully. Uh, it certainly does seem to have some sleep-inducing properties. It can also have some mood-elevating properties. And uh, you have to be careful using it along with, say, antidepressants because you don't want to get into a serotonin syndrome where you have too high levels right, right. of serotonin. So I always you know, recommend if you're going to use something like that, please discuss it with your, um, your physician before doing so. Yeah. I mean, I just did a, a special uh, show with Dr. Oz about anger management and temper yeah. and we talked a lot about tryptophan and, and a lot of these mm-hmm. precursors to be able to increase mood and relaxation and all that kind of stuff one other question sorry yeah. marijuana what do you think because I have many patients who will come in especially here in California you can get a marijuana card I only use it to sleep Dr. Sophie it really helps me fall asleep and I, I've tried all those other things and they don't work what do you think why is it working yeah, it, well, you know, because uh, TA, well, marijuana is an incredibly complex drug preparation, right? It has cannabidiol as well right. as THC in it. Right. And the thing about it is that THC itself is, um, and this gets way beyond what we can get in here, uh, but it, it acts in a, a different way in how it affects the brain, and that's through this uh, process of retrograde signaling. So right. uh, the long and the short of that is it's very dose-dependent in terms of how it affects you. So small amounts of it do tend to be sedating. Larger amounts tend to be more activating, and very large amounts tend to be psychedelic. So it actually has different properties depending on uh, how much of it you're ingesting and also what other chemicals are in there, particularly cannabidiol, which seems like, uh, you know, for medical purposes may be very important and actually modifies the action of it. So, um, unfortunately, right now, you know, we have this kind of unregulated market, or at least here on the East Coast. I can't, you know, speak to what's going on in the West Coast, but certainly on the East Coast, you know, uh, one sample to the next may vary considerably. Right, right. And um, so I think uh, what we have to do is honestly look at it and say that, Our experience in the sleep field is that the best sleep is actually natural sleep. On the other hand, I have to admit, uh, I also hear this quite a bit, and even though things are not as developed in terms of medical marijuana on this coast as they are on the West Coast, uh, we certainly do hear people um, who are utilizing it for uh, sleep. I would say you just don't want to get into a dependency pattern with it. Right, exactly. uh, I think it really requires more research. And the other thing is everything I just said about uh, some of these effects of THC are all from studies that were done back in the early 70s. We don't have any new research since then. Uh, There are actually some difficulties with the government allowing more research to be done. So a lot of it is we just don't know. Right, exactly. You know what? You've been tremendously helpful, Dr. John Klein, from the well, Department you. of Psychiatry at Yale. How do we find you? Oh, oh uh, Where do you well, live? What's your address? Which is through my blog, which is uh, Sleepless in America on uh, the Psychology Today blog page. We've got it. Sleepless in America. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. We will be well, in touch. You. All you guys listening, you've got to reach out to www.psychologytoday and look for Sleepless in America. He's all there. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I know. Wow. We learned a lot about sleep. I hope nobody was sleeping through that. We had a good caller, great concepts. We learned a lot about the classic things from the call, a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting things, supplements. We had a voicemail from somebody who was really actually suffering. I'm sure like many people do, they're scared at night. They're not sleeping. People need to sleep. So you got to take a listen to the things we learned today. And there's really some key points that I'd like you to take away today. And there's so much information, and this is just a little bit of it, but really understand what sleep is about and how it is affecting your life. And then go from there. But key things to take away today, really, what are the stages of sleep? We have three stages of sleep. So really take a look at, are you going into those deepest sleeps to get restore your brain? That's probably why you're not sleeping at night, but know about sleep. Educate yourself. There are three stages. The primary sleep, the little bit of a deeper sleep, and then the really deep sleep. So three stages. we got to be hitting them all, and that's a full cycle. And we probably have about two to three cycles a night. If we're not, that's why we're not restored. So really look at that. Look at the three P's of sleep. There's the predisposing factors that make sleep a problem for us. They could be genetics. They could be traumatic things that have happened in our life where they could just be the way that we've learned how to 
deal with the nighttime when we don't sleep and now have trained ourselves that we don't sleep and we just don't sleep. So that's the predisposing things that will set us up to have a problem with sleep. The second P is the things that keep it going, the uh, precipitory factors, the things that go on like sleep issues in childcare, like I got to get up and take care of my child, or I have an aging parent, or I have a job that I'm Many of us doctors start our residency. We're up three, four, five times a night. We get an hour of sleep, got to get up again. So those are the things that keep it going. So you start off with maybe bad genetics or you start off with an issue of trauma or something, and then you have this life event that keeps it going. And then you have the the things that keep perpetrating it, that keep it going after that, which are like the uh, your beliefs of sleep, really after a time period of the genetics or whatever has set you up, then you have life issues that keep it going. It just becomes a certain belief that, like you could hear on our caller earlier today, his name was Paul, who just kind of accepts it after a certain point that it's just the way of life for me. Uh, I have, there are people who accept that they have arthritis or they have diabetes or they have depression. You learn to accept that I just don't sleep. But that's the point of today. Don't accept that. You can sleep. You need to sleep. And there are ways to get you to sleep. So learn about the stages of sleep. Know the things that keep sleep going and why it got off to that bad track. And then also sleep hygiene is the third point I want you to learn today. Sleep hygiene, very important things. I thought maybe hmm, they don't matter, but he says they matter, and I believe him. Dim those lights about an hour before you're going to go to sleep in your room. Low or no energy kinds of activities so that you're soothing yourself into sleep. And then be able to get yourself up at the same time every day. Get in bed at the same time every day. As close to those things as you can to keep the hygiene of sleep a very important part of your life, which is why it's the number one piece of sweep. Also, you can add supplements to this piece he was talking about. Some of the supplements you'll hear about, how they affect our brain, and how some of them actually do help. And then to understand that the biggest and most common sleep problem is called classic insomnia, and that is just kind of where your brain is set up from genetics or trauma or some issue that then has learned and you have accepted over time to just not sleep. But you can retrain yourself to sleep, and we've talked about ways to do that, places to go, books to read, so please take a listen. It's a really great educational time to learn about sleep and why it's so important to us. You can find my podcast. They're all on iTunes, and they're on my website at www.drsophie.com. Again, all podcasts on iTunes and on www.drsophie.com. Very excited. My new phone app is just about done. It'll be out soon, and you're going to be able to access all kind of great information and be able to text me. So that's important. You can reach me immediately. Call my voicemail anytime that you need to ask me a question. I'll get back to you at one eight five five sophie now or one eight five five seven six seven four nine six six. My book, Side by Side, The Revolutionary Mother-Daughter Conflict-Free Communication Book is always available, and any caller gets a free copy. Please follow me on Twitter and Facebook for any updates or anything that's important that you need to know, and tell me and give me your thoughts through Twitter and Facebook iTunes, download the full version of Andy Grammer's Keep Your Head Up, great song, and most importantly, don't forget to sweep. But you gotta keep your head up, oh, and you can let your head down.